The worst thing in the world is to have a solution in search of a problem. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Carlos Brito, the CEO of Anheuser-Busch InBev. He'll talk about the surprising technologies that helped this company hum during the pandemic and how to know you're solving the right problem. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm your host, Linda Lucina, and this is Meet the Leader. We foresaw not a pandemic, but we foresaw a world in which technology connection would be ever more important. Carlos Brito is the CEO of Anheuser-Busch InBev, or AB InBev. You might know its brands like Budweiser and Corona, but you might not realize that parts of this company have roots that stretch 600 years back, or that much of any global brewing enterprise depends on local networks of entrepreneurs and smallholder farmers. Long before the pandemic, the company was making critical technological investments in everything from blockchain to fintech to strengthen the communities it served and make better uses of resources like water and soil. We learned that we could be a solution to many of the pain points they have other than just selling products. He'll explain why those investments were important to the company even before the specter of the pandemic and why a brewer has promised that 100% of its direct farmers will be skilled, connected, and financially empowered by 2025. But first, he'll talk to us about the Smart Barley Program, a key technological initiative that helped keep the company going during the pandemic. We launched that program in 2013. And Smart Barley is all about leveraging data technology and insights to help thousands of farms around the world to be more efficient and to have less of an environmental impact by means of giving them training to use better the water, the soil, to have the right seed. So today, Smart Barley is present in over 12 countries across five continents. And in terms of research, we have 150 dedicated agronomists and researchers across the world and their mission is to develop high quality seeds and share best practice with farmers. So that's one pillar. The other pillar is weather data, very key for those farmers. So we have a, a partnership with a company that provides us almost acre by acre precision in terms of weather forecast. And we share that with our farmers. So they again know when to harvest, when to seed, when to plant. And again, that helps them in their yields and also the quality of the products they're going to produce and farm. And the other thing is about direct connection. So again, we started working with a company that can provide us this link with uh, the farmers in terms of sharing information and market access prices and everything. So together we help farmers navigate the impact of the changing world in terms of climate, finances, prices in real time. So they are on the ground making decisions and they're making better decisions based on information. And with things like weather data, how is the farmer connecting with that information? They're connecting via flip phone, correct? Yeah, this is a very important point. So in a lot of the developing nations, we have farmers that, again, are smallholder farmers, and they have a flip phone. They don't have a smartphone. So we had to create all everything I just described in terms of information uh, sharing had to be all based on flip phones, an SMS so we could uh, get people to be included 
as opposed to exclude it. So we designed the solution based in what our final customer for this information would have in terms of equipment. So they could be more productive in everything they do. So that, that's key. I mean, that's why we believe that for you to solve problems, first you need to understand what the problem is. You need to understand what the pain point is of somebody you're trying to help and then work, engineer it back. And not, as we, as, uh, we say here, the worst thing in the world is to have a solution in search of a problem. So yeah. before you start working on something, on a project or some sort, try to make sure that that problem is a problem for the final user that you're trying to help is a pain point. It's a gap that needs to be closed. Try to understand how this person operates in terms of equipment, technology, knowledge about, you know, or connection to, to the web or internet, what kind of connection they have. And then, and then engineer it back to provide something that can be used in the real world. So that's key. And had you not put this program in place in 2013, before the pandemic, what might have happened? Yeah, this is a very good point because I, I think uh, we would have tried in some way to, to use technology in a haphazard fashion. It would be not as planned as, as it was, but because we foresaw not a pandemic, but we foresaw a world in which technology and connection would be ever more important, we decided to invest in such platforms. And uh, at the end of the day, the adoption of those platforms were increased big time during this pandemic because, I mean, there was no other way for them to get information and to sell their crops other than using the, this technological platform. So if this had not been in place, at best, things would have been chaotic and at the worst, perhaps they would have ground to a halt during COVID. Uh, what would the impact have been? No, I'm sure, I'm sure you would have found some sort of solution, but it would not be as efficient as this one because it would be something that was built in a hurry, not understanding exactly what, again, the final customer needed and how they operated so you could design something or customize something that would fit their needs. But one thing that's very true about our business is that our business is a global business, but it's totally local in nature. So 95%, 97% of what we produce and sell are done locally. So we have assets on the ground. We hire our colleagues from the communities in which we operate. We buy from farmers that are also, that also belong to that community. We brew our products locally and we sell back to the community. So we understand what our farmers need because we are part of that same community. And we understand what our retailers, our customers, what kind of reality they face on a daily basis. Again, most of our customers are small, medium businesses. They work from sun to sun, you know, 24-7, mostly family business, mostly run by women. And uh, they have pain points. And uh, we learned five years ago or so that we could be a solution to many of the pain points they have other than just selling products that sometimes represent half their business. We could be also a provider in terms of financial solutions, in terms of fintech. We could also be a marketplace, not only selling our products, but selling other products that they need and that community by extension also needs. So again, we're totally linked to the communities in which we operate. If that community is doing well economically and is sound environmentally, we tend to do well. You mentioned fintech, and it might be a surprise that a beverage company has its toe in fintech. Why is that so key for AB InBev? Because we, we, we learned that what we have today, we have a connection with six billion retailers, again, most of them small, medium retailers, 
And given how frequent we interact, at least once a week, sometimes three, four times a week, we said, in knowing what we know about their lives and the pain points that they face on a daily basis, we said, maybe we could be of more use to them as opposed to just selling our products. We can provide also services and also products. For example, that's how FinTech came about. We, by talking to them, one of the things we learned in emerging markets with our small farmers, smallholder farmers, is that a lot of them don't have a bank account and they don't have a financial identity. So we are the only source, together with other companies that supply to them, a handful of companies, we're the only source of credit that they have, uh, for example. Or when they have a bank account, because they're a small customer for the bank, they pay a lot of their bottom line at the end of the month in bank fees, bank fees, to pay bills, to have deposits, to cash checks, this whole thing. So we said, well, okay, today with technology, we can be a, a financial wallet type provider so they can use us for all those services, our platform, and because we don't need those fees, we can charge way lower fees, sometimes 80% less than a bank. That will, have, that will cause them to have more money at the end of the month. And as they are more successful, we also tend to be more successful. So again, if the community thrives, we tend to do well. The opposite is also true. There are other technologies underpinning this as well. Can you paint a picture for us about how technology is being applied to problems that many people might not even be aware of uh, and how that works to strengthen that economic resiliency piece? So in some countries, in Africa, in Latin America, and also in India, uh, there is a, a market that's not an official market, unbranded, don't pay taxes, don't have quality controls, in which people produce alcohol beverages in their backyard. And if you check, you know, the news, from time to time, you'll see a big celebration, a wedding or something in which 40 people died, mostly men, after the celebration, because they drank something all from the same big container. And that was somehow uh, not a good product. So we would go to governments and say, hey, we have a solution here. We have a local crop recipe for a new beer. We'll use the local crops that are grown here like sorghum, cassava, will elevate farmers from subsistence sometimes to commercial farming because we'll give seeds and training. And we're going to have a product in the market at a lower price point. It will create jobs, government will collect taxes, and consumers will be safer. But when we did that, we had to create a supply chain for sorghum and cassava from very, very tiny farmers. So we had to use some middlemen that would aggregate crops from different small farmers to get a truckload and send to us. And we would pay the middlemen. What we saw by talking to the small farmers is that they were not getting the money. We thought the middleman was paying it down. Then we got together with BankQ, a startup that used blockchain to give these farmers identity. So we started using blockchain to make sure that because the system then is unhackable, that we could see exactly what the middleman was paying to the farmer. This smallholder farmer now can go to the bank and prove not only that she is a supplier to ABI, not to the middleman, and she has a steady income every crop, and she can prove that. So that gave her financial identity. That gave us certainty that she was getting the money that we thought she was getting or she deserved to get. And that allowed her to start a banking relationship because now she could prove that she had an income stream that was something that was reliable with a global company like us.
she can expand her business or fix her house. So this whole flywheel starts, you know, being accelerated. And that's how the world works. You know, if you have credit, you can invest. And as you invest, you grow. Your family can have a better life and so on and so forth. So the other thing is that it's safer to have money in bits and bytes that now you can have with blockchain. One of the problems that the smallholder farmers had is that sometimes when they would go to the co-op to sell their crop, let's say two bags of crop, they would get the cash. And then, you know, there was sometimes robbery situations in which they would be robbed and uh, would lose that cash. Now everything is electronically, so it's much safer for her to also have that money and use it only when it's needed. Your company had many of these programs in place as a good to have before the pandemic, but during they became a real need to have and helped people survive. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, no, no. I think technology today is an enabler. It's something that connects people and uh, independently of the need to be in person. And uh, for example, we spoke about farmers. So now let me talk about the retailers. The re retailers, when they got you know shut down because of COVID, they had a problem. So they couldn't really get customers anymore to come to them because the customers are also ordered by governments to stay home, right? And the retailers needed to recreate, reinvent, rethink their businesses because they had salary to pay, they had a family to feed, they had rent to pay, and so on and so forth. So what we quickly did, because now we have a lot of coders in our company, is that we wrote code. And in two weeks, we had a platform in the market where today we have hundreds of thousands of retailers already in this platform, which was a digital catalog that consumers had access, not only for products, for any product that that retailer would carry and had an inventory. And the customer could place an order, the retailer would get that order and would deliver to the customer home in that neighborhood. So we did that very quickly to make sure our retailers would have a way to recreate their businesses. And because these retailers of ours are very busy, they don't have you know, time to, to think about a platform and everything, at no cost to them, we offer that service so they could remain in business. A lot of these communities, especially small villages, they depend on that one, two, three, five stores for to buy their day-to-day -day needs and sometimes to get credit, also until payday from these retailers. So it's important also for the community to help these people stay afloat. What we see today is that this famous digital divide that happens in the world today, the haves and have-nots, is that the ones that are technology-enabled or savvy, they are booming. They were booming before. They are now booming even more with COVID. But now we see that there is a way also that you can give those same resources for small and medium companies so they can also have a chance to compete because they have a social role. They have a role in that community. Is that they don't have the time or coders or resources to create their own platforms, but there are platforms that can be shared and lots of retailers can participate and consumers can be in that same platform. Can you share a little bit about how the digital divide impacted farmers and retailers during COVID? We understand how it impacted other industries like education, but how did it impact your business, uh, farmers and retailers? We run a $30 billion supply chain with tens of thousands of partners upstream, let's say in 50 countries, that would be farmers and millions of retailers downstream in more than 100 countries. That would be your mom and pop, small store, bar, pubs, restaurants, and that's uh, what we call downstream. And uh, 
what happened with them during COVID is that most of our farmers are smallholder farmers. And they used to be very reliant on in-person contact to get training, uh, to get access to farm information, but also to sell their crops at local distribution centers or co-ops. And as everything got shut down, we had to use technology to bridge that gap with our farmers. We continued to offer training and access to information using radio, for example, in Uganda, or SMS, text, in Mexico, India, Zambia, for example, to reach our farmers. And in order to make sure they could sell their crops, we kept our crop mine sites open, uh, operating safely with PPE and everything. For example, in countries like Mexico, Tanzania, again, Zambia, Uganda, so they could have their livelihoods guaranteed during the pandemic. In downstream, when you look at our small retailers, it is true to say that of the 6 million retailers, 6 million that were serviced on a weekly basis around the world, most of them, the vast majority, are small and medium businesses. A lot of them run by women. And uh, there as well, we tried to bridge the pandemic by using technology. So, for example, we created uh, apps that could link them to consumers in their neighborhoods so they could continue with takeout despite being shut down. Uh, we also uh, helped them with, um, with vouchers. So, for example, the pubs that were closed, we had vouchers that we use our social media to get consumers to buy vouchers for your favorite pub, bar, restaurant, to help them with much needed cash during the pandemic, we would uh, match that money from consumers. And then once they would reopen, you could redeem that for food and drinks, not only our products, just in general. So that was a way to help them, you know, make, make it through, again, using technology to connect them with consumers that were willing to sponsor, quote unquote, them through the pandemic. So this is some ways that we use technology to help upstream our farmers mostly smallholder farmers, and downstream, our retailers, clients, mostly small and medium businesses. We've talked about a real straddling of the global and the local, and AB InBev has this really unique perspective across the entire value chain. Can you talk a little bit about how technology will be shaping that going forward? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting because uh, when you look at some companies today that are digital natives, that were born in a digital ecosystem, like the e-commerce companies and all that, a lot of them are buying brick and mortar local retail chains because they concluded, and so did we, that consumers will never be 100% online in the future or not, or neither, they will be 100% offline. There'll always be a mix. And that's why companies like us that were not born in the digital age are also going more and more online, not abandoning what we have in terms of offline, because what we have in terms of offline is much tougher to build. But if you can connect both, and that's why companies like us that, are, that were not digital native are going more and more to the digital world. And today we have more than a thousand plus people in our company that are coders. And if you go seven years ago, we had very few, because when you connect both, that's when the magic happens. I see a future, at least for our company, in which we're going to have a lot of the assets that we built during 600 years. Uh, our company in Europe started in 1366, 
the European part of AB InBev. So we've been in business for more than 600 years. And we intend to continue to be in business forever. We're brewers. But what we see is that if we can be more and more digital in many things we do, we can leverage the assets we developed and the relationships we developed with farmers, with our clients, with our consumers, and get it to the next level because that's what technology allows you to do. It allows you to, to really accelerate and scale and amplify things that you already developed even 100 years ago. You talked earlier about problem solving and how you should never be a solution in search of a problem. What else do you depend on when you're searching for the right way to uh, tackle or address a challenge? If you look at my life pre-COVID, 60% of my time was traveling, visiting our markets. And while visiting a market, you go visit the customer, the, the retailer, the wholesaler, and you talk to consumers. And in talking to customers and consumers, customer being the retailer, the consumer being the final consumer of our product, you learn things that are working, things that they like, things that they don't like, things that they wish they could have, pain points that they try to solve when they're yet not solved. So I think that if you want to be a company that's here to stay, you really need to listen. You really need to listen to your customers, consumers, because they know what's happening at their end. And if you're here to solve their problems and give them things that will, will get their lives to be more enjoyable, better, more efficient, you need to understand from them what are the pain points they have and what they're trying to solve and what works, what doesn't work. So the example of the farmers in some emerging markets where they have a flip phone, if we had thought that they had the phones we think they have, as opposed to the phones that in reality they have, we could have wasted a lot of time and money by coming with a solution that only 10% of them would be able to use it. And that would be frustrating for everybody. You mentioned the importance of being a good listener, and it strikes me that absolutely no one thinks that they are a terrible listener. Everyone thinks they're wonderful at it, and certainly that cannot be the case. What can anyone do to make sure that they're listening actively or effectively or, or even 10% better? An active listener means that there is discussion, there is conversation, different points of view. If you enter in a room and things are decided in two minutes or three minutes and everybody agrees, that was not a very good session because uh, I don't think there was much discussion or listening that took place. Because uh, we tend to say here in the company that we like conflict. We like healthy, productive conflict where people are respectful and constructive. But it's much better when you have different points of views being expressed. And through discussion, you always get to a better place, to a better decision. And that's why groups tend to perform better, especially with tough issues. If you have diversity of thought, because people expose different opinions and from those different opinions, you get to a better place, a better solution. But I think one thing that uh, you could force yourself is to, again, to try to provoke in a good way, a good discussion, and also to have consequences from the discussion. So, okay, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Well, let me give you a feedback on this one when I have more information. That proves that you're active listening as opposed to just listening. Is there a book that you recommend, something that you think everybody should be reading? Yeah, one book that I, that I read many years ago, but I continue to use as a, as a reference book, is uh, Good to Great from Jim Collins. Uh, I think it's a great book because it's about what successful companies did. It's all about what successful companies adopted as a way of building their business in terms of values, culture, kind of leadership, 
It's, it's based on research, not his opinion. And it's based on facts and figures. Is there something that has really stuck with you from that book that you put into play or advice that you uh, always point out to others? Yeah, sure. I mean, something we've always practiced even before we read the book is this idea that we are the company. Myself and my colleagues, we are the company. There's no such a thing as A, B, and BAV other than myself and 170,000 colleagues around the world. We are the company. So this idea that because we are the company, the, the fact that you're attracting talented people is the biggest determinant of whether you're going to be able to build a great, enduring company. Because as they grow, the company, quote unquote, will grow. So in his book, he says the same thing. He uses a sentence that uh, I like it very much that says, first, who, then what? So first, you make sure that you have the right people on the bus that is in your company. And then you give them something big to do. So first who, then what? So that's what we learn time and time again. Because for you to have a, a very powerful brand in the market that does well with consumers, it's because you have great people that have the right insights from consumers and are able to translate those insights into branding, into things that consumers can touch, uh, drink from, enjoy, buy. So if you have a brewer that's very efficient in terms of use of water, is because that brewer is managed by people that care and have learned best practices and use them day in and day out. So again, people. So it's all about people and the shared values. We call it culture. We talked a little bit about some of the big issues that you are looking to tackle, such as bridging the digital divide and uh, strengthening financial independence. Lots of leaders in business and government are looking to push this through as well, especially since the coronavirus crisis. Uh, assuming that all these things come into place, everyone makes progress, what does 2030 look like? What is the before and the after? I think a world uh, where inequality is less of a, a problem, talent is equally distributed. Talent is everywhere. Mature markets, emerging markets, any continent. You have talents everywhere. The only problem is that some people never had the chance to develop the talent they have in themselves because they didn't have a chance to go to school or have access to the web and the wealth of knowledge that today is for free available at the web. So there's a lot of talent today being wasted in many parts of the world, not because they're not available, but because they're not developed. They don't have a chance to blossom. And I think that's something that uh, in the world of the future, let's say a better world as we call it, talented people would have a chance to blossom no matter where they live because they would have access to education and to basic needs. So it's a big dream, but I think it's one worth having. That was Carlos Brito. Before we go, don't forget to check out a special episode of Radio Davos, part of a podcast series dedicated to the personalities and insights shared at last week's Davos Agenda Week. Here's a sneak preview. What do you get if you bring together two dozen heads of state and government, well over 500 leaders of the world's biggest companies, scientists, campaigners, and academics from all over the world? 
it's Davos, but this year an entirely virtual event. Vaccines must be seen as global public goods, people's vaccines. We rejoin the international climate effort with humility and ambition. We risk facing the greatest rise in inequality since records began. It could take more than a decade for billions of people to recover from the economic hit of the pandemic. The world's leaders tackled the world's biggest issues, the pandemic, inequality, technology and climate change. My name is Greta Thunberg and I'm not here to make deals. If we don't urgently act to protect our nature, the next pandemic will be around the corner. If you have half an hour to spare, Radio Davos will bring you an audio roundup of the action. This has never been done before and was something that has shown the power of science. If you're solving an existential risk, if you're part of the solution, not part of the problem, it is a tremendous opportunity. Download Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Search Radio Davos or The Great Reset or visit wf.ch slash podcasts. Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. That's a highlight from Radio Davos, brought to you by Robin Pomeroy. Get that in all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. My thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, and Anna Bruce Lockhart for all of their help with the production of this episode. My thanks, of course, go to this week's guest, Carlos Brito. And thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.